if these lives are encouraging people to act as if they don't need to produce before they consume, you know, as if they don't need to pay back their debt, as if they basically, Sasha touched on this too, that essentially can just lie themselves and there are no consequences because we've artificially deferred the consequences. When you feed that back into point number one, Mm -hmm. that will influence how everybody else behaves on the long enough time for us because Mm -hmm. culture is necessarily uh, self-referential. If you can get away with lying, you deteriorate the collective ability of basically everybody else to stop you from lying. And one by one, they'll all start lying instead. So that's Bitcoin fixes this. Hooray. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. All right, so we just wrapped up talking about Chapter 7. A lot of interesting stuff there about data monopolies and the nature of these new economic entities or semi-new economic entities. Now we're going to go into Chapter 8, which you guys titled, These Were Capitalists. Subtitle is Social, Urban, and Cultural Capital. Their humani- communitarian essence and their unlikely champions. And I thought I would. Op- I just really like the the opening. Uh, there's a long opening excerpt here in the chapter. I think it's really good. It gets back to our early discussion about the nature of capital, but I think it's additive in a way. It kind of hits on some things that we didn't maybe touch on directly, mm-hmm. or maybe reiterate some of what we talked about as well. But you guys wrote, "quote following." 
Hernando de Soto, we see capital as economic potential energy, a stock of crystallized and stored time, the memory of experimentation and discovery, a tool allowing us to not need to work completely from scratch and shared in a common language to spare us equally from isolation. Beautiful fucking definition, by the way. As DeSoto explains in The Mystery of Capital, and now you guys are quoting DeSoto, to unravel the mystery of capital, we have to go back to the seminal meaning of the word. In medieval Latin, capital appears to have denoted head of cattle or other livestock, which have always been important sources of wealth beyond the basic meat they provide. Livestock are low-maintenance possessions. They are mobile and can be moved away from danger. They are also easy to count and measure. But most important, from livestock, you can obtain additional wealth or surplus value by setting in motion other industries, including milk, hides, wool, meat, and fuel. Livestock also have the useful attribute of being able to reproduce themselves. Thus, the term capital begins to do two jobs simultaneously, capturing the physical dimension of assets, livestock, as well as their potential to generate surplus value. From the barnyard, it was only a short step to the desk of the inventors of economics, who generally defined capital as that part of a country's assets that initiates surplus production and increases productivity. End of DeSoto's quote, back to what you guys wrote. Capital is whatever can be transformed or used to produce goods that satisfy human wants. It can be stored, deployed, and accumulated because it is productive. But as discussed in Chapter 4, Wittenstein's money, it follows also that capital is, like value, entirely subjective. We call capital that which we use in the process of creating a good. Milk may be the good, which will satisfy our want for a beverage, but it can also be the capital, which we can use to produce a cake, which will satisfy our hunger. Capital is thus an abstract idea we superimpose on reality to describe things which have subjectively useful potential energy, unquote. Um, just an absolute fire introduction to the chapter. And um, the reference to cattle and livestock, I think there's a connection to money here too, because the word pecuniary, which means related to money, is derived from the Latin word pecu or pecune, which meant cattle or money. So there's there's just an interesting etymological connection there. And then I just wonder if you guys could expand a bit on the origin of this term and its unavoidably subjective nature. I don't know that we touched on this too much previously, that we've, we've been discussing capital as though it's all these different things. You know, it can be scarce, non-scarce, it can be it can be knowledge, it can be goods or tools, as as you quoted in your, your essay, that capital is tools. It's kind of like one of the most simplistic, reductive ways to describe it, but it's very subjective. And we touched on this. I think I mentioned this earlier. I don't know if it was this episode or before, but like oil, right? Mm -hmm. If you had land and you had oil on it before the industrial age, that was not capital, right? It was a, it was a nuisance. You had to get the oil. You had to pay people to come and get the oil off the land so you could grow crops fast forward to the industrial age you have one of the most important forms of capital in the world on your land right it's 
you know, people fight wars over it now. It's one of the most precious forms of capital in the world. So just by the nature of our technological paradigm changing, the subjective capital value we ascribe to oil changed as well. It went from non-capital to capital. So I wonder if, if you guys could just maybe tap into that a little bit and expand on the subjective nature of capital. Well, I think the oil example is really good in that it it tells us how the same thing can, depending on the situation, be either seen as an asset or capital as an asset or a liability. An asset because you can now use this within the context of what you know to create value. A liability because you do not have the in the prior uh, example before industrial revolution, you simply don't know what to use this for or mm. what use there is is limited. And therefore it's not as valuable as whatever else you want to be doing. And another one, sometimes I think about this when I am on a cycle path that used to be a trail, a, a, a railway line and it's been reconverted. And now it's a nice urban little cycle um, nice little infrastructure people can go around and things like that. There's tons of value in this, but no one really thought about that being like a green little corridor through a city being valuable when they were building railways mm. at the time. Like mm. the the, it's now really cool in that it offers a respite from the hustle and bustle of the city. People also use it for transportation. So it's clearly capital. It's still super useful. It's tra it's transportation. It's entertainment. But before that, it was a completely different use. Mm -hmm. Same can be said for canals. People now row on canals over mm -hmm. the weekend, and it's it's like a hobby. But before that, it was heavy duty industrial usage. So mm -hmm. there's there's tons of of ways in which the same thing can be seen differently over time. And in both of those cases, I've given with the canal and and the the railway, they're both assets. They're just used differently. So that's one mm -hmm. thing. Another one is an asset, which is a liability in a different environment. That's what you were talking about with oil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I, I maybe just generalize it a bit as well, because th there's another really obvious example of uh, historical importance, I guess, uh, or importance to the historical development of economics, which is the, uh, I'm going to say the so-called Walter Diamond paradox. I don't mm. think it's a paradox. I think it's just slightly confusing if you're not thinking about it properly. But mm. the the idea that uh, in almost any context, uh, diamonds are going to be valued many, many orders of magnitude more so than than some seemingly equivalent amount of water. Um for, for a whole bunch of reasons, um, or a whole bunch of physical reasons, let's say, as opposed to just like, oh, value is subjective. Mm -hmm. However, if you are uh, dying in the desert, there is no amount of diamonds that you will value at all, whereas you'll value any minuscule amount of water nearly infinitely. Mm -hmm. And so this is, again, it's not really a paradox at all, because the answer is uh, not just subjective value actually but maybe more specifically marginal value so this is yeah. effectively when i say it's it's you know of importance to the historical development of economics this is basically solved by the marginal revolution this is the context in which it was invoked then as well mm -hmm. um but 
when understood that way, it's clearly not paradoxical. Uh, paradoxical when you appreciate marginalism on top of subjective value. And I think just extending it a little bit to, to tie in with your question, Robert, that there's no reason to stop just at goods because if anything, if anything, capital that produces goods introduces yet another layer of subjective uncertainty, which is yeah. it's mm. not just the subjectivity of you know the exact situation in which you may or may not value something or value one thing more than another and yet you know mm. that would change if the circumstances were different it's it is that but another step removed because you're also guessing what other people will value mm. implicitly it's because obviously mm. the whole point of ascribing something as capital is that you're not going to consume it you're going to use it to create something that someone will consume right know? Yeah, the um, I think it's a great, great point, and I appreciate you bringing up the water diamond paradox, quote unquote paradox, because that's what catalyzed, uh, I think, as you just said, that the marginalism revolution in economics, right? That value is subjective. We we value things at the margin, right? It's not water as a whole, diamond yeah. as a whole. It's like the next yeah. unit of the thing. Where do we put that in our scale evaluation? And that too is the fundamental schism between Keynesian economics and real economics, right? That um, Keynesian economics treats these things as uh, it just does. It, it views value as something more objective, I guess, whereas Austrian economics treats it subjectively. And the other thing that that invokes for me, is it gets into uh, Peterson puts this well, he says that the world this is like in the opening of his book, Maps of Meaning. And I'm paraphrasing here. It's not what he actually says, but you can conceive of the world as made of matter or you can conceive the world as made of what matters. So it's this realm of like relevance, right? How is it relevant to human action? Yeah, how, yeah. how is it useful? <laughs> a good line. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's about human purpose and, and the value we ascribe to different things. But that obviously changes over time as technology changes, as knowledge changes, really, right? As the stock of knowledge changes, you might say mm -hmm. something like that. And yeah. this gets into culture, I think, which is the this is kind of the thrust of this chapter eight is we're talking about the, or you guys are writing about the relationship between capital and culture. And culture seems to be more of that side of the universe of what matters rather than mm -hmm. matter itself. Yet somehow they interact which is very interesting. Yeah. So I'm not sure that Keynesian economics uh, assumes that there's such a thing as objective value, but to quote the, well, or I, I may have misquoted that. So pre marginalism, they used to talk about utils, right? These elementary particles of value. I mean, definitely any, I mean, there's a couple so, of things you could mention. So, so I was, the, I was just, yeah. So before, yeah. So classical economics, definitely. Yeah. It, it's all about uh, the the labor cost theory. Is what is it called again? The theory of value. Well, the the marginal revolution itself was largely a reaction to Marx, which yeah. is hardcore labor theory of value. Labor theory of value. Which yeah. Adam Smith had kind of implicitly, but without drawing so much attention to it. Yeah. Uh, Ricardo have... kind of picked this up, but also introduced a, a, a bit of also implicitly an element of cost theory of value. And I think mm -hmm. cost theory of value is more, uh, it's getting closer to the point. And I think to a lot of people, it seems more intuitively plausible. Mm -hmm. um, 
but then obviously Marx went completely in the other direction and was right. extremely politically successful, even if the economics is complete nonsense. Yeah. And the, the marginal revolution was essentially three different independently discovered corrections to everything that had proceeded, but in particular Marx, because it was so egregious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas on the Keynesian side, the issue is more, this is somewhat to paraphrase it, epic rap battle that too much, no. too <laughs> yeah. much aggregation ignores human motivation or something like that. Those are the lyrics. So yeah, you're, yeah. Just, you're just aggregating and by aggregating your, you think what you're doing is something clever. Yeah. But you're yeah. also, you're also no, regulating your ability to understand what yeah. it is. That K- individual... K- Keynesianism doesn't, uh, doesn't, mm. I mean, basically now other than the, the couple of kind of recalcitrant Marxists that are still out there, nobody really objects to subjective value no. anymore. No. The, right, the Ke- right, right, this, right. Is, this is going a bit off topic. We might come back to it later. But the Keynesian sin, as such, is more exactly this this point about aggregation. It's it's a it's a we would say, I suppose, a, a misunderstanding at the macro level rather than this. This is very you know what we're talking about previously. It's very much like foundations of micro. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You're right. So to restate that properly, it's not Keynesian economics. It's pre-marginalism. They had an mm-hmm. objective view of value. Yeah, post-marginalism yeah. is subjective view. I love the destruction, the utter destruction of the labor theory of value. If you pay someone to dig a hole and fill it back in all day, like <laughs> yeah. it takes a lot of labor, but you're not, you're quite literally creating nothing of value unless you just, I don't know if you just value working the person yeah. for no do you, reason. Do you remember the, you know, the anecdote with Milton Friedman? Oh yeah. So yeah. I'm going to say, yeah. it's unfortunate because he's a monetarist, so he's not quite you know, we, we like him, but we don't like him too much. But he has this he's great, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he has this great anecdote which touches on not only the labor theory of value, but actually mm-hmm. brings capital. I mean, it's more about capital. It's, it's it is really really good. It, it may be apocryphal, actually. I'm not sure if it really happened. Probably, but, yeah. But so he he's uh, visiting some building site, and the foreman is showing him around, and uh, Friedman notices that you know there's 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 not that much machinery, right? There's not that much capital basically mm-hmm. a lot of people are using uh like shovels and, and hand tools rather than real heavy machinery and he, he points this out to the foreman and you know he's wondering if, if like if, that, if that's on purpose and you know what what is the reason for this and the foreman says oh yeah well you know we had this this hiring mandate right so you know we figured that we actually do have access to all this heavy machinery but we could hire a lot more people if we just gave them shovels instead mm-hmm. and then Freeman comes back with you could hire even more people again if you just gave them spoons <laughs> right that's a really good one <laughs> yeah so the cat again capital another definition we've probably given like this way of amplifying returns on human labor right mm-hmm. anything that's that's doing that and then to i guess try to speak properly to the error in keynesian economics is that it's it's trying to conceive of the world in economic aggregates which I think Sasha, to your point, like too much yeah. aggregation is a, it's a lower resolution depiction of reality, and yeah. Yeah. lower resolution might not it's, it's erroneous, right? Like you can't say, oh, inflation up four points, unemployment down three yeah. points, like it's some kind of constant law, like water freezes at zero degrees centigrade. Yet that's the sort of the mathematical yeah. uh, approach they're trying to apply, whereas real economics is based on, you know, methodological individualism, human action, etc. Yeah, and and this is getting into quite a bit of detail we don't want to go into, but with Keynesianism, it's also 
one of the issues when you try and add math into it and you bring mm -hmm. in ISLM models and things like that rather than because if you do read some of the some of the, the initial work from Keynes, a lot of it is based around the distinction between uncertainty and risk, which we do talk a lot about. Yeah, we actually a lot of Keynes favorably, it. just, just for the fun of it. His, his argument would be that so this 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 is my steel manning of, of of his position would be that if you're in a in a really di in a dire environment economic environment no one really knows what's happening mm -hmm. and so there is no more risk model that works everything mm -hmm. becomes uncertain because you don't know what could happen and so you need some entity to restore some sense of order to say hey things are going to be fine a bit like Imagine the troops are running away and then the, the mighty general says, <laughs> no, no, let's go forth and conquer. And you're bringing hope back into the mm -hmm. troops and the troops, okay, turn around and they needed this. So this is, this is the, the idea, I would say, I'm somewhat butchering it, but I think this is one of the, mm -hmm. the more interesting takes is that distinction between risk and uncertainty and how you can as a state say we are now in a highly uncertain environment and it's our job to restore some sense of go back to risk and as in bring back conditions that people understand, mm -hmm. bring back conditions where we can create trust between individuals, which is often what the state is quite good at doing. It creates with rules and regulations. It essentially lets you know, hey, these are the rules of the game. So mm -hmm. it's like returning people back on the pitch so that they can mm -hmm. play the game that they understand. Now the issue is the issue of aggregation. And then there's also the whole issue of political capture and kids would argue running a surplus is necessary when you're not in a recession. And when do you ever hear, see that being done? Mm -hmm. Right. So right. anyway, so I, I think there are a number of issues. Yeah. Uh, there, there's something I want to add. We don't want, yeah. There, there's something I do want to add though, which is um, I'm glad we have actually got to this point because I've, I've considered bringing this up on Bitcoin podcast previously, but it never quite, Fit, but I think actually this conversational format is is better for it, and it's somewhat heretical as well. Which is that a lot of what is now called Keynesianism doesn't really come from Keynes. It it actually comes from a guy called Paul Samuelson, and if anything, he's like the sneakiest of all. Certainly in hindsight, because if it it, it should just be called Samuelsonianism, basically, like mm. all of the all of the argumentation around uh introducing math and more the the i guess the philosophical or almost epistemological component of the certainty that can grant you in the moment mm -hmm. that completely comes from samuelson it's not to let kings off the hook entirely because he suggested a lot of quite sort of stupid things but they were a lot vaguer and a lot more philosophical and a mm -hmm. lot less uh arrogantly put forward than is now the norm and is labeled Keynesianism. And actually, as I was talking there, I, was, I remembered um, something. I'm sure people can find this very easily on YouTube. Uh, there's a legendary clip of Hayek uh, being interviewed and he says something like, uh, yeah, Keynes is, you know, he's clearly brilliant, but the, his biggest problem is he just doesn't understand economics. <laughs> Which I think is, I, I kind of vouch for that. I think that, you know, that comes across in the way that we refer to him at least. Or that he's not well read in economics. And yeah, yeah. He's, I, I think he then goes on to say that when the interviewer is like, wait, what, what are you talking about? Like, no, no, seriously, he just like doesn't, he didn't know, which is which is basically true. Yeah, he, he didn't, he was not well read in 
uh, well, in economics, I suppose, but he he didn't have a good grasp of all of the material he thought he was building on. Hence, he introduced a lot of quite silly ideas, but at a you know at a time when um, they were they took they they politically took on a life of their own. Yeah. But but it's Samuelson who you should really hate, and I think the reason that I get so kind of animated about it. Although even though I've never said it before, but it's like it is kind of fun to bring up is that uh, my real point here isn't that you should be nicer to Kings. It's that you should be meaner to Samus because <laughs> mm. he's really bad. His, he, he has a book, which I, I actually I bought this book just because I like I felt like I had to read it or I felt like I had to have it. Um, I think it's just called Principles of e- No, it's Principles of Economic Analysis, I think. Something to that effect. We can put it in the show notes when we actually mm. look it up. But it is like the worst influence on economics of honestly, I think of anything ever. Mm. It's uh, infamous textbook. It's not the textbook, no. It's no. the no. The textbook is just called economics because it's like everything. Yeah. It's, yeah. No. The one Sasha means though. This is interesting too. Actually, this is another good historical tidbit that. So he wrote this. Um, his his influence was absolutely enormous. So this is why I think it's so odd that he's not you know better known now and more hated now. In his day, he was easily the best known economist in the world, you know, in, in a popular sense, which is even now is kind of weird to think. Like, I don't think there's maybe maybe Paul Krugman, I don't know, but I don't think there's any economist who's like popularly known now. But he was, he was like almost everybody would have at least been able to tell you who he was if they didn't know that much more about him. And he wrote this textbook, Economics, which is called Economics, uh, which was, you know, Keynesian and then Samuelsonian, even though that's not a word. Um and was the the source at least in terms of like the bedrock of economics education in the u.s he was american mm-hmm. um for you know the, the following i don't know it's been since then like 70 years maybe 80 years by now and the really funny thing about it was that in the introduction to this book he predicted that the soviet union would soon overtake the u.s in mm-hmm. terms of their you know various me- i don't know if it's gdp it specifically was, I think GDP, yeah. yeah so whatever measure of economic success and but he said by a certain date and i forget what the first date he used was but there were something like 13 or 14 editions of this textbook over 40 years and every single edition in the introduction that date was pushed back (laughs) and then it was finally taken out in the final edition of this book which was in the mid 80s i believe Mm. he finally just stopped saying this it was like 13 times of being wrong about this is enough I've had enough. <laughs> was it after the collapse? Then, is that when he took then, it out? You know, good timing, anyway, right? If if that's what you're, uh, if that's the prediction you're aiming for, that that I agree, that is a good time to stop predicting that in hindsight. So anyway, yes, people should hate Paul Samuelson more than they do. <laughs> oh my god! Was it taken out pre or post collapse of the USSR? No, I think pre. I think it was taken out at the time. Okay, lucky him. One, one thing, just. <laughs> Hate the sin, love the sinner. We're not saying, <laughs> hate men, right? I'm not yeah. even saying hate anything. I'm yeah. going on this whole hate train here. Yeah, it's all love. It's all love. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down costs. 
And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's really a a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Um, So, okay, again, capital subjective valuation is subjective. And I think this flows nicely into the, the, a central discussion in this chapter, which is culture, right? Culture has this sub- subjectivity to it, obviously. Uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here to page 288, but I wanted to read this excerpt as well, which I thought was a beautiful definition of culture. You guys write, culture is a common frame of reference. It is a corpus of symbols used to communicate. Culture is language or the sounds and images we attach to ideas. It is stories with their archetypes embodying the codes and mores of encouraged and reprimanded behavior. But it is equally how we respond to these ideas and behaviors. In consuming culture, we create it too. Culture is a web of metaphors which we use to filter the raw information of the world into a distillation of the communal relevance of individual yet shared experience. Metaphors make connections which are not contained in the fabric of reality, but created by our own associative powers. Scruton argued, that was a quote from Scruton, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. So just like Hernando de Soto's physical capital, culture too is the product of our imagination. Um, so my question here is like, what is, cause we've talked a lot about capital. Now we're talking about culture. What is the relationship between these two things? I mean, this is one of the most, when we start talking about Bitcoin fixes, this fixes that, yeah. you know, makes people better, makes us more honest, what, you know, all these things, it gets hard to describe why. Right. It's, it's like, well, how, how does fixing the money, quote unquote, fix the world or fix the culture, et cetera. So what if, if we're trying to like move into this discussion, a general open question, like what is the relationship between capital and culture and how are they mutually influential? So in that quote, you mentioned the word corpus. Mm-hmm. It is a corpus of symbols and that 
speaks to accumulation. It speaks to putting things on top of each other, adding things over time. Mm-hmm. And we're back to the idea that you require time to accumulate capital and all these things. It's mm-hmm. trial and error. It's learnings turn into stories mm-hmm. to tell people that you have done something, learned something, and maybe you can't quite express it in a succinct way, but you can tell the story about it and people can feel what that conclusion is. Mm. And you then have these symbols accumulate and be communicated amongst people in that group. That turns into a body of work, which we can call a culture, the mm. culture of a group. And it, it's the accumulated knowledge, experience, uh, stories that, that people tell each other. It's mm-hmm. clearly capital in the sense that it is of value to individuals who want to make things that they can uh, then consume or, or that can ameliorate their lives. You read of, uh, it could be like such, such a simple thing as dictums, sayings from the past that remind you that you need to behave in a certain way, not behave in another way. Mm-hmm. And that those, and the reasons why you might say, well, why should I do this? You know, why should I not steal or whatever? Well, because we've tried that. We've mm-hmm. learned from these experiences and that's our culture. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the way in which the learnings essentially make that group more productive because it's mm-hmm. a, yeah, it, it's just a sort of how to guide. Based on experiences, how do you want to add to that? Um, probably not much. I maybe one thing that came to mind just as you were speaking though is because I, I I might not have set out to describe it that way, but I think experience and use the word experiment as well. Yeah, is a really important point. And I'm I'm actually thinking back to one of the first things we talked about uh, in the previous episode um, from our our chapter one and when we're talking about MMA but at that point obviously we were looking forward we're saying we were we were keen to get all these concepts out there in this more accessible form because we anticipate them becoming uh both useful but consistent throughout analyses of different kinds of capital Mm -hmm. and so I think the the idea of experimentation you know in that case it was like well let's have these different fighting styles that have never been exposed to one another Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, there's no way of deducing the outcome. We have to just do it. Uh, that extrapolates really nicely. If anything, it's probably cleaner to trace that to culture than it. It's it's a bit more. It's a bit messier in the case of economics. Or maybe that's just me personally. I don't know. But mm. that it's it's it, it it helps communicate the value of not needing to discover everything from first principles because. Mm. And, and being appropriately, this is, again, some terminology we used a lot last time, de- very deliberately, you know, being appropriately intellectually humble to acknowledge what learning has has gone before you such that you don't need to start from scratch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, can, you can trust in some sense. Maybe, maybe listen is even more important. You know, you can acknowledge that you are part of a community that goes beyond just yourself mm. and the things that other people have learned by experimentation, you can build on. I think that's, that's a really interesting component to this. Yeah. 
Very interesting. And I, again, what came up for me there is um, when I first discovered Peterson's work, he had this quote or trope, you might say, it's like, we all live inside stories. And when he first said that, I was like, what in the hell does that mean? Like, it almost, it's almost too obvious, doesn't make sense. It's almost like a tautology. Like, of course, everything is, if I'm talking to you about something in some ordered sequence of ideas or events, that's a story, right? Mm-hmm. But there's something deeper here, right? Where culture is like this, I don't know, a human social operating system, perhaps. You know, it's like, here are the things we've learned over time. It's the, I don't know, ideological scaffolding or something that we that you, mm. we almost don't even realize. Like the moral intuitions we have, the way we act towards one another, it has this, there's this latent cultural programming that we just adopt by virtue of coming up in a certain time and place. And the word corpus, I'm glad you zeroed in on that one because, you know, that's what the Bible is, right? To pick out one religious text, it's a, it's a corpus, right? It's a library of books and stories we've accumulated over time. And from that flow, again, certain morals of the, these stories or moral intuitions. And we talked about this, I think, in the first episode that perhaps those stories fuel liberal ideology, right? that underpins capitalism to some extent that you need this understanding of, well, let's not steal from each other. Let's honor the sovereignty of the individual, et cetera, to kind of get capitalism even going in the first place. So maybe in the, what's the quote about standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, like we can see further because we stand on the shoulders of giants. Culture is something like that. It's letting us stand on the shoulders of these proverbial giants that have come before us. So that we don't have to start from scratch. So, my question or point of conversation here, like is religion or religious stories or mythology more generally, is that a form of capital? Like, is that, it's something that's letting us not start from scratch. It's a term we keep using. Mm-hmm. Is that a form of capital? And if so, like to what extent there, there are some people that think, you know, Oh, religion is something we can just dispense with. It's this old primitive storytelling, whatever. Now we're in the scientific age. We don't need it. Can we, like, it seems like it, it, we do need something. We need some type of story or mythology or culture, cultural fabric to inhabit. So is it capital? And then if so, to what extent is it important for capitalism? So I definitely think it's capital. It goes into the feeding of human capital. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we were discussing uh, in the one of the previous episodes, the Protestant work ethic, you can Mm -hmm. think of that as an operating system, Mm -hmm. as a set of things to do and things not to do. And they were incredibly successful ideas to believe in. Mm -hmm. They, in that sense, they are true. Mm -hmm. Very practical sense of if you, these ideas that come from generations of experimentation were distilled into stories reveal something that is simply true that is Mm. objectively Mm. true that Mm. is out there that is beyond us like the division of labor (laughs) like you discover the division of labor in a way through these stories something like yeah exactly you discover ideas you discover things you understand and you go and try them first you have an hypothesis oh maybe this and it turns out that whenever you apply this idea or this learning from that story, mm-hmm. you something good comes out of it. 
Mm -hmm. That is truth in a way. Mm -hmm. Can I tweak that just slightly? I think it's when everyone applies it. It's it's far more powerful when it's when everyone when applies it's, it. Yeah, when it's not just one person's behavior. When it's it's sort of it's reciprocal and uh, reflexive. Even it's you're behaving in a certain way, in large part because you expect others to behave that way. Hmm. Yes. Well, that gets to the pra- That gets to more pragmatic. As in, I'm not stealing because I don't want people stealing from me. That's no. That that that's not. Really I think it's more I, like uh, the, 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 I don't want. I'm not stealing, and also I'm going to stop other people stealing. I'm going to stop other people stealing. I, I, I hold others to the same standard because the point of this is communal. Yeah. I'm going even further, and perhaps that's further than you'd like to go, in saying that it's objectively true that... Oh, no, I, th- I think that's... I, no, I agree with that, too. And, the, and I ground that in religion. Mm. As in, mm. It's yeah. something that is beyond the human experience, and that mm. it's not just relative yeah. to our own point of view. It is objective, but... That's yeah. that's completely different discussion, and um, yeah, it gets the, it gets down the root of religion and things mm-hmm. like that. It's kind of off topic. The, the point about it being objectively true, I think, is really interesting. Actually, I, I I don't disagree with that at all. I quite strongly agree with it, and I think there's a, a really interesting framing you can give it, which we haven't really talked about in our discussion yet, Robert. But but is is in the book in quite a few places, which is it goes back to we did mention this last time um, about different ways of knowing. Right. And again, right back to the you know, chapter one in MMA and being appropriately uh, intellectually humble and being mindful of what you can and can't know. And mm-hmm. you, you attain that knowledge in the first place. And so a concept that we I'm pretty sure we bring this up in chapter one because we know how important it is and how many times we want to come back to it is something that we're primarily quoting James Scott when we say it. But it's not it's just completely clear. It's not his idea. He he is quoting a handful of ancient Greek philosophers, um, but he's using it in a really interesting way that we borrow. And it's this term metis. Mm-hmm. And it basically, it, it's tricky because it, he finds it so interesting in the first place because it doesn't have a perfect translation in, into mm-hmm. English. It's actually, now I think about it, it's kind of like the, the ambiguity around free, you know, it's freeze and freedom, freeze and beer. It's different ways of conceiving of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And his argument, we, we maybe could go into this actually, because it's, it, is right through the book is very much on purpose. I think probably James Scott. I do have some definitions that that I've sorry to interrupt, but that I pulled out on Metis from the book. We didn't talk about it last time. I don't think, but uh, being rules of thumb or heuristics, Mm -hmm. the ability or the experience necessary to influence an outcome. Yeah. But it resists simplification into, you know, like uh, rigid principles, right? You can't codify it. It's, it's I mean, maybe one, one, no, something sorry, like no. something like wisdom, perhaps, right? It's yeah, hard I think to... wisdom is a, is a decent translation. I think the the one that I was leading up to, though, which again isn't perfect, it's just it's like a good way of thinking about this is distinguishing between knowing that and knowing how. So mm-hmm. meta is knowing how, mm-hmm. and it, or maybe you could you could tweak it slightly. You know, knowing what to do, not not knowing that something is true in some maybe more platonic sense almost, mm-hmm. but knowing in a situation, what in you know, probably like a social situation, mm-hmm. um, to, to tie in with this, what should you do? Not not normatively, not what is ethical, but in order to achieve a certain outcome, mm-hmm. which probably is ethical to, to mm-hmm. be frank, but in order to achieve a certain outcome, what should you do that will probably or definitely 
achieve that. And so I think with, with that reading of knowledge and how you can know things and how you can come to attain that knowledge, what Sasha was describing actually is is true. I don't think that's that's objectionable at all. If anything, I think it's interesting that it might seem alien to people mm-hmm. because, and this is exactly Scott's complaint, this is why he introduces this term in the first place, we've got to a point where, this is true even when he wrote it probably 30 years ago or so, we we give so much credence to knowing that and mm-hmm. and you know platonic yeah. facts mm-hmm. and propositions and so on mm-hmm. um as as a culture that mm-hmm. we as a consequence of that I, I think probably not so much rarely deliberately but nonetheless completely downplay knowledge how mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and so when sasha described this as like this is true mm-hmm. I, I i completely agree it is true it sounds probably to some people sounds weird but it i don't think it should mm. yeah there's um I'm reminded of John Verveke, who I've had on the show. He distinguishes there's four P's of knowledge, but two of them are propositional, which is knowing that. Mm-hmm. And then there's procedural, which is knowing how, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I agree, it is, I would argue, objectively true that stealing is decremental to productivity, somewhat intuitively, right? If you if you consider everyone in the world is spending their hours doing something. Every hour that's spent stealing is spent not producing. So obviously productivity go down. And further, when you steal from people, you're disincentivizing them to produce. Because if I'm going to produce something and you're going to steal it, then why should I even produce in the first place? Mm-hmm. And so, um, well, you know, what it's interesting because you get, you know, it's hard to talk about. You have this like mythological form of capital, story capital, I don't know, narrative mm-hmm. capital human operating system, whatever, that actually lends itself to the creation of more physical, traditional forms of capital, right? We get new inventions and innovations and all of that. Um, but then that sort of has a feedback on our on our stories, on our cultural uh, development. So that I guess that's what I'm trying to tease out is like, what is that feedback loop between this uh, narrative form of capital and then like, more physical traditional forms of capital and and the extension to that question is like i'm trying to get to ultimately is like well what is bitcoin really going to do to culture <laughs> right like it's a yeah, new, yeah. again we touched on it last time it's a technology but it's also maybe an ideology sort of because you need people to agree to it for it to to work to exist or the more people that agree to it the more it succeeds the more it monetizes so i'm just trying to and these things are very tricky to talk about. Like, what is, how does that feedback loop work? And then what does Bitcoin do to culture? These are big questions. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't think of a, a simple answer. The feedback one's super interesting. I, I see exactly what you mean. I'm not sure that we really talk about that, though. No, which is why I don't think I have a very good answer to it. Is anything on the mind for you? No, no, not on the on that specific point. I could throw. I mean, just thinking out loud, like okay, mm-hmm. objectively true that stealing reduces productivity. Also, objectively true that in I guess the 
great promise of Bitcoin is that it would make stealing more expensive or more difficult, more risky. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of lending itself to a more productive society, which would be one which accumulates more capital over time. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, is, is, yeah, um, I, think the, I think the Bitcoin one's a bit easier to answer probably because it's, I think the reason we're struggling with the first one is it's, it's almost too general. Like Bitcoin is a specific example of yeah. this, uh, why there might be this relationship. I, I actually, I think it's, I think you have to be careful with being too simplistic and too reductive about that relationship because my my conception of how Bitcoin affects culture, I think, involves quite a few steps. It's not like, oh, we have Bitcoin and then, you know, everybody just becomes more moral or whatever. I, I know you're not suggesting yes. that. It's, I think it's important to kind of get that out of the way. And actually, I think that I think the especially tricky thing and this is maybe a reason why it's difficult for people to understand if they haven't started to experience it themselves mm-hmm. is that if anything, it's that the incentive structure provided by fiat is bad. It's not so much that the incentive structure provided by Bitcoin is good. Mm-hmm. It's that it's almost like there's like a, this is water phenomenon mm-hmm. almost with, with people who haven't yet wrapped their heads around Bitcoin that they don't know anything other than, than fiat. So they can't see how bad it is or, or in what ways it is bad in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I mean, my, I'm sure some people will disagree with this, but my conception of the impact of Bitcoin isn't even the Bitcoin is itself good. It's just that it undoes the bad of fiat. And so mm. it really is very difficult to even start to explain to someone who doesn't kind of already get it because mm. it's not even clear what about Bitcoin you're supposed to point to. I mean, this is, this is, has always been my approach is, is actually just start to unravel how fiat corrupts culture and corrupts mm. incentives and so on. And we talked about some of this last time. Mm. Um, I find that much easier to do than to say how Bitcoin is, you know, fixes it or is good mm. for it. Um, I don't know if you've, if you have an easier, like a cleaner way. I don't know if it's a cleaner way. I've got a different uh, framing for it, which is that it's much harder, or if not impossible, to lie under a Bitcoin standard. So when and by lie, I don't mean tell a lie. I mean mm. lie on the money network, mm. because in a fiat system, we were discussing this again previous episode. You can you can go and essentially just say as a government, uh, I will now activate God mode. Mm-hmm. And yeah. laws of economics be damned, I am now suspending everything and I will now interfere. Right. If things do not satisfy my agenda, I'm going to simply tweak prices. Mm. I can change the price of capital. I can increase the vault. I can increase the, mm. uh, the amount of, of money supply that's out there. I can start tweaking things. And all of these things, they're manipulations. And they're essentially trying to send signals to get participants on the network to behave in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And those messages in some ways are lies in the sense that they're not messages coming from participants of the network acting in Mm -hmm. a specific way saying, Mm -hmm. oh, hey, by the way, I'm not going to take that loan because the interest rate right now is too high. And guess what happens if you do that? If enough, if enough people do that, the interest, the interest rate simply comes down. Mm-hmm. If more businesses want to lend, 
there is increased leverage. Maybe at that point, rates go up because of a number. There's higher demand. There's more risk for the incremental lender from the incremental lender not being as high. So, like all these things, they're realities of individuals communicating with the money network. They're not lying. They're literally telling you, "Hey, this is my situation. I am willing to trade X for Y. This is my this is how things are happening." So you can't lie. And if you do lie, there's a money consequence in the monetary consequence. We talked about this. Imagine being a uh, coming in with an arbitrage idea and you're wrong. So you're not really lying, but you're wrong. You're going to be hurt financially. And if you're coming in with a lie, you're also going to be hurt because the, the, the network cannot be corrupted in a way. Mm. And so if you can't lie on the money network, well, you can't as easily lie either when you are doing other things and mm. that's forcing everyone to be more honest with each other. Mm. So back to the discussion we were having with Keynes. Keynesianism under a gold standard would be quite interesting and very different from Keynesianism under the fiat standard. Because if it's under a gold standard, go back to the initial thing I was saying about Keynes essentially trying to go back from uncertainty to risk by providing mm. confidence. The, the only thing you could do is you could you store gold or you store mm. whatever hard asset you have mm-hmm. and you start spending that. Yeah. Okay. If you run out of it, the only thing you can do is tax it mm-hmm. directly, openly tax your population mm-hmm. or steal, but openly again, people will see it. People see it. You're, you're not just surreptitiously printing more money and nobody mm-hmm. can see that what you're doing and you're kind of behind the scenes doing all of this 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 all nobody really understands what's happening and no and and it's a lie in, in essence because you're provide you're, pro, you're introducing signals in the marketplace that have nothing to do with participants right you want to create this idea that you should stop lending right now mm-hmm. or that you should start lending right now mm-hmm. without having done any interactions in the marketplace for that it's like if you think of that you're removing lies and just by forcing that, mm. you're forcing yeah. people to be honest. And just the political discourse becomes yeah. way more honest. Because if you're going to do Keynesianism under a gold standard or under a Bitcoin standard, you're going to have to tax, have a reserve, which you will spend in bad times. And, mm-hmm. and people will very quickly realize whether or not it's a good idea to do that much more quickly than if you are under a fiat standard where you can just put it under yeah. the rug. So that's one thing. I think not lying at the core of the network tons of value and then that feeds into society because hey the way you're going to interact in the marketplace or the way you interact with politicians and the way they influence your decisions on a day-to-day basis is going to feed into tons of other stuff yeah so it's i know it's a few steps removed and it's not super clean and i it's not like bitcoin then culture is great and look <laughs> right, at that right, 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 <laughs> we're, right. Build, we're building parthenons again and everything's mm-hmm. wonderful it's not it's not that simple but you're clearly providing a system that has fewer bad incentives. And so you could hope that over time people have yeah. better outcomes. That, that would be my way of framing it. Mm. Yeah. I, I've actually, I've thought of a way of linking this more clearly to, to culture, but it, it's, it's perfect because it builds on exactly what you've just said. I, there's two observations I'd, I'd make to set this up. So one, I'm actually just going to read a tiny bit of the same quote, Robert, which is that in consuming culture, we create it too. Mm. So to tease that out just a little bit, I think it's really important to see culture actually again to refer back to the previous episode and previous discussion uh to see culture as dynamic rather than static right mm-hmm. culture is not a 
I don't know, just to, to make the point, it's not like a list of rules. It's not something you read and you're like, oh, okay, that's my culture. That's how I'll behave. Mm-hmm. It's something that you learn by behaving in it and that your behavior also contributes to. So culture is always evolving based on the behavior of the people in the culture, which might sound kind of, well, it sounds self-referential because it is. It's, you know, you can't understand it without that self-referential component. So that's point number one. Point number two, though, is building directly on what Sasha's mentioned, that when you think about what these lies in the economic network are, they're not random. They're not just, you know, changing bits of information here and there. Mm. For essentially, I think, political reasons, they're always of roughly the same sort, which is pushing out the consequences presumably negative consequences mm-hmm. of current uh, positive well gains, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess another way of, of framing that, uh, it, it's not a, describing exactly the same thing, but it is similar, which is just consuming rather than producing, right? Mm-hmm. So deferring as much as is even physically possible the production of what we want to consume, or actually to refer to a part of the book we haven't discussed yet, uh, in uh, chapter was it five, the capital strip mine, mm-hmm. um, just chipping away at the stock of capital. So mm-hmm. consuming the capital rather than consuming the, the you know, the flows that the capital throws mm-hmm. off, which obviously you can do in the moment, but the obvious analogy there is, you know, the which we, we say then, we say multiple times afterwards, the farmer cons- just eating the seeds rather than planting. Mm-hmm. You can always eat seeds, but eventually you run out and then you have nothing, then you can't right. consume you can't consume at all. So I think the the way you combine these two is really interesting. And this, I think, actually finally directly answers the question, or at least attempts to answer the question in terms of what the impact is on, on culture, that if these lies are encouraging people to act as if they don't need to produce before they consume, you know, as if they don't need to pay back their debt, as if they Basically, Sasha touched on this too, that essentially can just lie themselves and there are no consequences because we've artificially deferred the consequences. When you feed that back into point number one, Mm -hmm. that will influence how everybody else behaves on a long enough time horizon because Mm -hmm. culture is necessarily uh, self-referential. If you can get away with lying, you deteriorate the collective ability of basically everybody else to stop you from lying mm-hmm. and one by one they'll all start lying instead so that's mm-hmm. bitcoin fixes this correct mm-hmm. <laughs> no it's so fascinating um and I'm, I'm just reminded like so you're saying like culture we're consuming culture obviously we're plugged into it but at the same time that we're participating in it we're also producing it mm-hmm. yeah sort of like language right we're all using language all the time but there's again new words pop up new memes new phrases whatever it may be um and and it's interesting too that maybe the connection here i you notice language changing based on technology changing right you get new phrases the one i always like to point to is that's a feature not a bug right we say that about a lot of things now that aren't software but that's a uh, phrase we got from the software paradigm that wouldn't make sense 30 years ago. No one would know what you were saying if you said that. And so it's almost like with new, and you said it in here too, culture is this collection of metaphors. With new technologies, we get new metaphors 
And then those new metaphors get extended to other domains of meaning, right? Um, so you, the tech is changing the culture and then the culture is changing the tech and it's like, kind of like back and forth, back and forth. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. That's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. And so I want to ask that, all right, this might be a stretch, but it's just something I've thought about ethics if we define ethics and please correct me if you have a different definition for this but something simply is like a code of behavior generally accepted code of behavior you know general expectations for behavior let's say or action you know we talked about religion we've always had these stories that kind of guide us ethically like oh it's bad to steal it's good to love thy neighbor whatever the thing is but we've never had a system of ethics that is like, I don't think, plugged into economic incentives. It's like, I don't know if you'd say Bitcoin is a system of ethics necessarily. It's not saying do not steal, but it's sort of yeah, making stealing or lying less productive or fruitful <clears throat> for the individual that does it. So is that like, can we conceive of Bitcoin as a system of ethics energized by economic incentives somehow? And is that part of its novelty? So the way I would frame it, I'd be interested in seeing if you agree mm -hmm. with that, because that's not really something we touch on. But I think that what you start with are these objective truths about humans, about morality, and then you find tools that are true in the sense that they are in accordance with these fundamental mm. objective truths. So the reason why Bitcoin is true, if we want to use that word, is because it understands the reality of human ethics. Mm. And it it is shaped in accordance with those human ethics. 
And so if it were, if it had a different shape and we were who we were, it simply wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And so it's not so much that it's itself is ethical. It just maps onto mm-hmm. what yeah, is yeah. actually ethical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We were discussing, like, don't lie. Mm-hmm. Here's a system where you, it's very difficult to lie. Therefore it maps onto that. And mm-hmm. it respects the individual, right? Man has mm-hmm. made made in the image of God. Therefore there is sovereignty in the person you need to respect them for who they are. Mm-hmm. All these things, they shouldn't be means to your ends, but they should mm-hmm. be ends themselves, like all that. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what you're essentially reinforcing with that structure. So it's, mm-hmm. it works because it's true. Yeah. yeah. And that truth itself is fundamentally grounded in something way deep, way, way deeper. Right. It's, that's the mm-hmm. bedrock. And it just matches. Um, yeah. It's also maybe an interesting angle on that too is how intentional all of it was. And I, I'm i sort of, I want to preempt myself a little bit because I, I do get a bit wary of arguments about, you know, what did Satoshi really mean kind of thing. Um, but I think there are some things he clearly meant that aren't really uh, in dispute. Um, like the, you know, the, the, headline from the times article mm-hmm. that's in the genesis blog uh, yeah. that's a pretty clear message not just as to his intentions um but also the context mm-hmm. of those intentions that that make it all undeniable i think mm-hmm. you know it's not it's not just that not that anybody i think would make this argument anyway but it's not just that we kind of stumbled into this and like, oh, wow, that, you know, turns out this works really well as money. Who knew? It's mm-hmm. It was extremely deliberately conceived to be maybe not perfect money, but the the best that we yeah. have had. Or it was, it was conceived in contrast to mm. bad money. <laughs> Back to the culture point and capital accumulation, it is standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So from a technical perspective, clearly you needed to overcome a number of hurdles to get there. Mm-hmm. But then also from understanding the structure you would want to set up in the first place, that takes hundreds of years, thousands of years of economies working out and looking at what mm-hmm. worked, what didn't work, and writing things. And there's tons and tons and tons of books and hours of thinking that go into inspiring someone to then think that this is perhaps the answer and yeah. then we take that on and say oh i like that right let's try and apply it and see if it maps onto the reality of human behavior mm-hmm. and if it does map onto the, the onto onto who we are truly if it therefore is true it will grow as a yeah. network because mm-hmm. it simply maps onto reality and so it's true because it works it works because it's true right and and, and that's where that that's where it goes, and so it's it's capital at that point. Like Bitcoin could be capital if it is useful, or if Charlie Munger is right, it's nothing. Right, <laughs> you know right, 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 yes, right. Yes, yes. Yeah. From his perspective, it's not capital; it's just useless. Yes. So again, yeah. very subjective, but I think, it will I think prove it's... itself out through experimentation. Right, and it's yeah, it's the the usefulness or the pragmatic truthfulness of it is proven in people using it, right? Mm-hmm. If it works to achieve a certain yeah. purpose, then that, 
I think you use the term in the book somewhere, a vast laboratory of trial and error, right? That we've Yeah, is that that's a quote from someone though, right? Is it Jacobs? Yes, probably, is it? I think it's Jane Jacobs. Yeah. It, does, it does sound I think like it's it. in the urban section. Yeah. And so fiat is like breaking this it's natural breaking. ethical yeah. code of do not steal, right? Because once you get into a fiat paradigm, you're you're printing money, right? You're stealing again in a surreptitious way. And so I this is more of like just a philosophical, rhetorical flourish, perhaps, but I love this quote that human nature is like water. It takes the shape of its container. It's almost like we're just pouring human nature out of the fiat container into the Bitcoin container. And in the fiat container, we are incentivized to treat people as means to an end. Mm. Right? If you're printing money to steal from a population, you're not treating those people as rational, independent, you know, uh, ends in themselves. You're treating them as a means to your own enrichment yeah. as a central bank shareholder or bureaucrat or whatever. But in the Bitcoin paradigm, it's actually incenting, incenting us to treat one another as ends in ourselves because the stealing to treat people as a means of stealing from them through printing money or fiat legislation, let's say is just less doable. So somehow there's this like ethical shift occurring as a result of a technological shift. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I have a response to that, but do you want to, you find the immense laboratory bit? Do you want to, is there something you want to mention? No, there's nothing really. I'm um, looking for a quote. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sasha Fine in the book where it's an immense laboratory of trial and error. Mm. Um, what was it I was going to say? Um, oh, sorry. I just completely forgot what so, I wanted to bring up. Or maybe maybe there's this one. At the very beginning, this is a, a quote uh, from a book about Robert Moses, who was a urban planner in New York. So it's a book. It's a quote about him, right? It's not from him. But... Uh, uh, so it says, yeah, you can draw any kind of picture you want on a clean slate and indulge your every whim in the wilderness in laying out a New Delhi, Canberra, or Brasilia. But when you operate in an overbuilt metropolis, you have to hack your way with a meat axe. Mm. And it's <laughs> because he's, he's drawing, he's, uh, well, he's planning highways through New York and things like that. And it's just this idea that, you know, he comes in and he's like, we're going to have to we're going to have to hack our way with a meat axe. And that's how I think about the Fed interacting in or interfering in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, this is too messy. And we're going to need a clear, we're going to need a clear highway running through this because that's where we want to get to. And it's kind of just using whoever's participating in that network as an, as an end to their, to their means. Uh, sorry, as a means, as a to, means their, to their end. Yeah. I got it mixed up there. Uh, rather than respecting individuals who live there and be like, oh, I'm challenging a community. Do I do 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 we work with that community in shaping the the future of that city, or do we simply just completely uh, annihilate entire neighborhoods because we think it's of it's of value to the society, but we've not really asked them because right. hey, why should we? We are the planners. Surely we know better. We have studied this this stuff right? <laughs> right so because we went to university do we really need to listen to people who are living there yes. yeah i remember what i wanted to say which is um just making a couple of links between uh, different points that we've 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 brought up um 
and it's on this question of okay if you if we have a bitcoin standard you know how, how are people incentivized to behave and how does that affect culture the the first thing to pick up on again was my point which i'm, I'm not insisting that this is the way other people have to think about it but just it just this is the way i think about it that it's really just undoing all the bad of fiat it's not necessarily that good in and of itself but one one of the aspects of the you know the harm of fiat that i mentioned before is just uh setting things up such that the neg what would naturally be negative feedback is is postponed and mm -hmm. so a minute ago i mentioned okay well all that feeds pretty directly into the culture there's another element of that though which is that they're postponed but not indefinitely right the, the consequences do happen eventually mm -hmm. and people do suffer eventually and actually one link here to culture but again it's more in the fiat as negative sort of lens is that there are uh and so this is this is the other point i wanted to this is what i was forgetting before you, you were asking about uh cultural frameworks that tie directly to economic incentives mm. um i think there are it's it's i don't think it's like a, a major focus of, of really any culture that i'm aware of but there are nonetheless uh you know cultural dictums let's say or or, or received norms around um economic activity uh maybe more even more on a personal level around you know the the not just the utility of saving but i guess the that there's an ethical component too right that mm -hmm. if you are a good person you should save and i i would argue again this is like a pragmatic truth it is good to save mm -hmm. uh, in particular because when there's you know this is how you unravel where the truth even comes from that when something goes bad and inevitably things will eventually go bad so this is now maybe even bringing in some of what sasha was mentioning about Robert moses and and just central planning in general it's kind of relies on the assumption that nothing is ever going to go wrong because mm -hmm. you've just figured it all out but mm -hmm. the received wisdom is okay eventually something is going to go wrong if you have savings you can deal with it right? right and you're not pushing that cost on others you're not externalizing or you're not socializing the cost even though you've already privatized all of the benefits and so I think that's that's a really important way of linking it in with culture that if you if you can't set up the circumstances where that can even happen in the first place, mm -hmm. that cultural norm won't have been shipped away at. So, so basically, we will go back to it is wise, prudent, even good to save. Mm -hmm. And every now and then something will go wrong, but people will be able to deal with it. Yeah. Other than everybody seemingly thinking, nah, why, why basically ever save when you can always borrow and just accumulating more and more, well, debt, literally yeah. in the financial sense, but almost more, more ominously, like, um, you know, in the sense of eventually something is going to go horribly wrong. And then basically nobody can deal with it because not only because we don't have the money, but I think more importantly, because we don't have the culture at that point either. Yeah. And the capital, right? Like, yeah, yeah, capital is going to consume in the process too. Um, yeah, it's just fast. It is so fascinating, and the the key link. I don't know this word incentives. We throw it around a lot, but <laughs> it's like, how do you really get in? Like, what does that really mean? Um, there's this. <laughs> I heard that. I don't remember where I heard this. So someone said, "Eat first, then ethics." <laughs> yeah. 
it's like almost like ethics are a bit of a luxury in a way that we create for ourselves through capital accumulation. Like if you're in a pure yeah. caveman environment, like your ethics are basically well, we remember zero we, capital uh, world. It's like your yeah. ethics are useless. We touched on this last time, and I think it links very nicely with what I just mentioned that, you know, if, if you make people, I think this is exactly what I said. If you make people desperate, Mm-hmm. which to tie into what I said a minute ago, you will do eventually if you keep postponing the negative feedback, if, it, if you force right. it to all come at once when no one has any savings and no one has any ethics, right. Right? you know, eventually it, it'll get really ugly and people will get really desperate. But regardless of how it comes about, if people are desperate, they just will be selfish. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and the, 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 the kind of commentary I gave on that last time is that it's not, I don't think that claim is in any way deterministic i think it's just common sense mm-hmm. right and i think the context that time was you know we we're talking about um what is even sensible to expect from from people in terms of like how you create incentives in, in mm-hmm. the first place um and yeah i think this is this is this is a very clear one that i i, I like the quote basically where, <laughs> where i'm going with this that yeah, yeah you, you do need to uh, yeah. you need to eat you need to you need to just not be desperate in the first place and then actually where, where it came from last time was more the obviously that requires a base of capital in order to get to that mm. point but I, th- I think the ethical point is is maybe more fundamental than the economics that support it yeah so uh, with that quote i think it's true that that's how you will behave i don't know that that's how you ought to behave yes in that yes when when there is no food on the table, right. you're going back to I don't care about ethics. Let me just let me just be ruthless and get whatever I need to get. Yeah. But if you have that attitude, the issue is it's harder to escape that that situation. Mm-hmm. Right, chicken and the egg kind of thing. And right? and, and that's and, and yeah, if, you think of, yeah, yeah. if you think of the very early mytho- uh, mythological stories, they're all about often sacrifice, right? Yeah. And the sacrifice killing the lamb, whatever, it mm-hmm. is about, hey, I will give something now to get something in the future. Right. People in Cain, it just starts like that. God's like, all right, come and give me your offerings. Come and give me something. You're going to get something back in return. Right, it right, starts right. there. That's all in the early biblical stories. And you need to have that mindset, but it's it's so it's so much easier to, to, to be like, yeah. nah, that, why would I do that? Why would right. I why would I even put something aside? I'm just going to consume it. I'm hungry. And right. well, because that's the start of the treadmill. That's how you start that yes. process. And it's so hard to see it when you've never gone through that process many times and you've not seen generations of improving life qualities of you know, improving standards of, of quality of life, because how do you know that it's going to work? Yes. Right. And right. Right. So if not for culture, if not Which for culture, and culture is the yeah. story that keeps right. reiterating that point. Like, please do this. Please do put things aside. Mm-hmm. Do please take some of what you are making and and donate it in essence to the future. Some things will come back to you, and it will be yeah. Uh, a plenty. I think actually, the, um, an equally interesting framing is exactly the other way around. So it's it's imagining this disintegrating. Yeah. Right. And so this whole point of okay, if you're if you're hungry, if you're uh, you know, if you're really suffering for it in, in whatever way, you're you're just going to be selfish. You're just, you know, maybe you shouldn't be, but it, it's likely that you're at least relatively going to be more of selfish course, and you're going to care less about other people. 
that's a, and you, you actually, you, you mentioned this briefly yourself, Robert, who gave me this idea that there is kind of a chicken and egg element to this because that setup, I think, is a really fascinating way to appreciate uh, not only capital, you know, consumption of capital, mm. uh, but also making it more, making it more intangible than just the, the cliche of the farmer mm. with the seed, mm-hmm. but also more, in a weird way, more realistic. Um, you know, more, more appropriately appreciating the tragedy of it and, and linking it to culture as well. Because if you're, if you're being selfish, if you're, um, you know, if you're really struggling and you can't afford to think about other people, the obvious immediate consequence of that is that you're unable to create that social capital. Because again, social capital is, and, and we we argue, I think we're quite explicit about this in a couple of places. Social capital is the precondition to forming any kind of capital, right. because, because it requires cooperation. It's it's this, you know, people have to disagree, but nonetheless cooperate, and mm-hmm. they're not the same, but they're not forced to all be different either. They have to. There has to be a happy medium, and the the you know poverty and desperation and and hunger uh, is admittedly it's an extreme but when you're in that situation you you can't create the social capital that is necessary to create the economic capital mm-hmm. that is necessary to give you food right. <laughs> to get out of the situation and so actually thinking about how both about how this can unwind and get very ugly very quickly and also why back to your to your point and your question over why culture is, is completely intrinsic to this. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting as well. It's, it's mind blowing really. Cause I started to think of mythology as social capital, like the original yeah, social yeah, capital. Definitely. Right. Yeah. And it's, I guess, I mean, obviously it teaches us many things, but one of the most important things is this, how can we negotiate with the future? Right. The, the very basic biblical notion of sowing before reaping. Right. And so you, you, there has to be that catalyst point. It seems like the storytelling or the mythology, whatever, is that beginning of social capital that leads to the accumulation of more traditional capital. And so, yeah, it's amazing. It's like, do not lie, do not steal starts to create this flywheel effect towards civilization. Yeah. Um, and, and to your point earlier too, like, do not lie, do not steal is also people are incentivized to save in that environment mm-hmm. and savings gives us anti-fragility when the bad things do happen while well, we have savings mm-hmm. right whereas on the fiat standard you just invert the whole thing it's like yeah you know consume 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 yeah um, fascinating stuff i've kept you guys too long as it is um but that i couldn't interrupt that last part of the discussion the rest of this chapter is equally mind-blowing i have a million more things to talk about but I think we can call it a day for today. Um, I, again, really appreciate you guys doing this. I appreciate you going down these deep philosophical rabbit holes with me because I'm always wrestling with these things in my mind. So I like to be in good company to talk about them. Um, where can people find you guys on the internet? Have you figured out where people can find you yet? <laughs> yeah. uh, that was your homework from last time. Yeah, for me, uh, Twitter is the easiest. Uh, it's just A-L-L-E-N-F-3-2. Yeah, for me, it's Sasha underscore Myers. Uh, Sasha's S-A-C-H-A. Myers, M-E-Y-E-R-S. But I don't tweet very often or zeet very often. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. The, 
the website formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> oh yeah. X post, right. Um, so. We'll put that in the show notes and I look forward to the next discussion guys. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the time.